And then he shoved me in some stinging nettles and rode off on my bike. And that's why Sir Lenny Henry doesn't get a Christmas card from me. What? We're recording. Why didn't you save? God's sake. Hello, my nasty darlings. My name is Piano Teeth, the man behind the voice inside your head. Dead, dead, dead. Can't get enough of me, can you? If this is your first time, then I suggest you go back to the start. However, briefly, I have no skin at all. I can't be up there with you, and so I stay here in the dark with Jasper the Toad. Say hello, Jasper. Why not? Shy. You're pathetic. It's rude, actually. I spend a lot of time in the bath, soaking my skinless sinews in various potions and drinking bleach. Yes, a lot of bleach. This then... What is it, Jasper? Now you want to say hello? No. No, you can't. Had your chance. Blew it. Look, you can't rudely not say hello and then decide to say hello. That's not how this works. Either you're with us or you're against us. Where was I? Interrupted my train of thought. Oh yeah, bleach. Um, so I drink bleach and... Uh, do you see what you've done? You've ruined my flow. It's rubbish. This is the first impression that people get. It needs to be full of intrigue, classy, quality. If I was listening to this now, I'd hate you. Your social anxiety has ruined this introduction. Yes, hang your head. Go on, I don't want to look at you. Right, so I drink bleach, loads of bleach, and then I'm plunged into a story which I then share with you, which is why we are all here. My sexy scumbags, don't judge me because of this amphibious prick. I've got one hell of a story coming up for you, I promise. But first, and this is very exciting, we have finally started to be sponsored, yes? Some faceless corporate entity wants me to act as a middleman between you and them, where I will tell you about some of their stuff and you will buy it. So, here it is. Here's the advert. Wait for it. <coughs> Your mattress is shit which is why you're tired all the time and your back hurts. No wonder you're sad and not achieving in life. You should hear what your friends say about you when you're not there. Buy this new mattress to get a good night's sleep and start bettering yourself. No more lying awake in existential dread. Instead, you'll be fast asleep in the arms of the attractive person that will undoubtedly want to have sex with you. Successful people sleep better. That's a fact. Not even science can prove. So what are you waiting for? Do something for once in your life and buy this mattress. And you too will be smiling, as if you were a happy person. Buy the mattress, now. Well, I thought I did really well there. That was an awful bit of copy and I truly brought it to life. If anyone heard that and wants me to manipulate people into buying your stuff, then please get in touch. I'll sell anything. Whatever brings the bleach in, eh? Right, that's enough of that. Bored now? Let's get on with it, shall we? This story is called Fox Hunters.
Sir Cecil Gubbington was running for his life. He'd never had to run for his life before and didn't think that he'd ever have to. Who does? And he was woefully unprepared for it. He wished he wasn't so large. It was only now, whilst he charged with the bushes, his lungs screaming with exhaustion, did he realise the importance of staying in at least relatively good shape and not indulging every gluttonous whim. In fairness, if someone had made it clear to him that he should stay in shape because one day he would find himself being chased by a gang of murderous foxes through some woods, then he would have listened. Of course he would. In fact, if he'd have known this was going to happen, then he wouldn't have come on the Boxing Day hunt at all. Would have stayed at home. Happily. But instead, here he was, desperately unfit and lumbering through the trees, chased by foxes riding on deer, determined to kill him. His horse dead. His friends dead probably, and he had a stitch. Typical. He wished he could stop, catch his breath, plan, assess, but he had to keep going. He slipped on some leaves. Stupid fucking boots, he growled. They were fine when you're on a horse, chasing something down with a load of other people, behind a pack of dogs, blowing a little horn. But outside of that, this whole outfit was very impractical. The helmet was useful, he consoled himself. At least it offered some protection from the low-hanging branches and vicious brambles as he plunged desperately onwards, knowing that his predators were close behind. He kept an eye on the steep decline that fell to his right, wondering if he could throw himself down the bank should the time come, and how long until that time came. The only reason he was still going was because they'd caught Gerald first. Poor Gerald. He'd watched for as long as he dared from the bushes, his stomach turned, remembering Gerald's pitiful screams for help as they gutted him and the way they wiped his blood on their faces after. Disgusting. He'd ran then, as quietly as he could, their howls of victory racing after him. But what could he have done? He couldn't stop. He can't stop, not till he was safe. The other issue of the outfit was that a winter woodland does not provide a suitable backdrop for a bright red jerkin. There was nowhere to hide. Might as well have been dressed like a Christmas tree. Hunters normally paint their faces or cover themselves in... Oh, fuck! Sir Cecil was thrown from the path, tackled by an explosion of arms and legs that threw him down the bank. Both he and his attacker tumbled down. He choked through a blur of dead leaves, legs and twigs, until a tree broke his fall, knocking any remaining wind from his lungs. <gasps> Immediately he felt more hands on him, and he was dragged beneath the overhanging roots of the tree where they formed a shallow cave. He gulped for air, his lungs desperate for oxygen, but the hands didn't stop as they began covering him with handfuls of mud, leaves and all manner of shit from the forest floor. What the... He spluttered once they'd finally stopped, but he was silenced by a muddy finger placed over his lips. Blinking away the soil, he sat up and looked to see the faces of Flora Sourbutter, Tristan Lockwood and Sir Bertie Darcy Rub-a-Dub-Dub laying on the floor, staring back at him. Shut up, Cecil, hissed Flora Sourbutts, her voice cracking like a whip. They're coming. That's Sir uh, Cecil, he thought to himself as he joined them, laying down on the floor. Seeing that he wasn't as far into the small cave provided by the roots as he would have liked, Sir Cecil attempted to squeeze his way further in between the others, but a sharp elbow from Flora put an end to that. Instead, he settled for trying to make his large frame as small as possible, which wasn't very. All four lay in deathly silence, listening intently for their pursuers. Flora Sourbutt lay to his right, steel-blue eyes unblinking as she cocked an ear to the side. A robust woman, 
It was her who organized the hunts, owning the kennels that housed the hounds. I hate runs, she would say whilst informing someone of how she personally disposed of any pup that failed to meet her standards. To his left was Sir Bertie Darcy Rub-a-Dub-Dub, a former major in the Territorial Army. He often wore a chest full of inexplicable medals despite never having fought in a war. And then there was Tristan Lockwood, a young man from the next village whose penchant for sex parties in Ketamin had cut short his career in politics. He was now vaguely working as an actor and house DJ and did something on Instagram with sparkly clothes. Sir Cecil disliked all three, but due to present circumstances was relieved to be in their company. Hoofbeats thundered on the path above them before coming to a halt. They froze in terror as they heard poor steps padding towards them in the undergrowth. Flora peered through a small hole in the roots, holding up a finger to indicate there was only one of them coming. The poor steps stopped by the tree, and the group immediately assumed that they were going to be discovered. They all readied themselves to run or fight. No one had fully decided, but probably run, hoping that the others would fight. After a momentary pause that felt like forever, they instead heard a gasp, followed by a splatter that became a steady stream of piss that trickled through the roots onto Tristan. His eyes bulged as he realized what was happening, but out of fear was forced to remain motionless, his mouth tightly shut, his lips quivering as a cascade of wee-wee ran down his face. Having relieved itself, the fox made its way back up the hill where, after an exchange with the others, the group charged off. The hoofbeats grew fainter till the forest was returned to its still silence. Yuck! gasped Tristan, wiping at the fox piss dribbling down his chin. That was close, said Sir Cecil, heaving himself into a sitting position. Heard you coming a mile off, sneered Sir Bertie. No wonder they were chasing you. We've been incognito this whole time, hiding away, and then we hear you smashing through the trees like a great lumbering cock. Incognito? Fuck off. I was doing fine until you threw me down the bank. Now my ribs hurt, and I'm covered in shit. It's camouflage. Using the natural surroundings to blend in, the foxes can't sniff us out if we smell like everything else. I was in the army. Bollocks, Bertie. We've all seen Predator. Sir Bertie went to argue back, but had to concede that this was the case. Worked, though, didn't it? He shrugged. Anyone else with you? Asked Flora. Uh, yeah, Gerald was, but, um, yeah. He trailed off, his eyes finishing the sentence. There was a momentary pause amongst the group, a mark of respect for their fallen comrade. They looked at one another, then all about them, realizing that they were probably the only ones left. The forest was now much bigger and a lot more threatening than when they'd set out this morning. Right. Sir Cecil broke the silence. What's the plan? The plan, said Flora, is to get out of these woods, back to civilization, where we can alert the authorities, see what these foxes do against the might of the British army. God, I'd love to see that report, scoffed Tristan. Who's going to take that seriously? Horde of foxes have weaponized and are murdering people. Sounds fucking mental. But it's the truth, Flora replied icily. Sir Cecil, sensing the tension, jumped in. Look, we can all agree it sounds fucking mental. It is fucking mental. But explaining it can come later. First, we have to survive. So let's go. Who put you in charge? Sir Bertie chimed in. 
As the only member of this outfit with military experience and leadership training, I really think it's I who should be giving the orders. I don't care who gives the orders, Bertie. I just want to remain alive. If you want to lead, then lead. What are your orders, sir? Sir Bertie's triumph faded as he realized the impotence of his next command. Right, yes. Let's go. He began walking in one direction. Then, realizing that they had just come from that way, he was forced to turn round and begin trudging back. This way. Come on, follow me, he said as he passed through the others. Sir Cecil exchanged looks with Flora and Tristan before they filed off, following their commander in a terrified single file through the trees. As they trudged on, the sky remained an unchanging grey smear, hanging heavy on the branches of trees that looked down, grim and unforgiving at the beleaguered group of desperate survivors, staggering over their roots. Yo, guys, guys, Tristan broke the silence. I was just thinking, right? Wouldn't it be total jokes if, like, we'd all taken acid and this was some, like, hideous trip, you know? Like, just, just, just imagine. Despite being met with a please-shut-the-fuck-up silence, Tristan continued. Mind you, my mate Hugh, yeah, bit of a shaman and total ledge de la apres ski, he says that when you're tripping and having a less-than-peng time, you've got to just sort of surrender to the experience. So maybe that's what we should be doing now anyway. What do you reckon, Flora? Floss? Flossie? Can I call you Flossie? Flora stopped, slowly turning to look at Tristan with a stare that shrunk his balls and sucked any life out of the conversation. No, she whispered. They carried on, in silence. It became clear that they weren't going to make it out of the woods this side of nightfall, and the morale of the group fell ever lower. Seeing friends butchered, hunted by foxes, covered in mud, cold, damp, and on top of it all, hungry, it had been an unrelentingly bad day. Sir Cecil's mind drifted to all the Christmas leftovers that would have been laid out, awaiting his return. The remains of a three-bird roast, wrapped in bacon. Half a beef wellington, wrapped in bacon. The sultry slabs of rosy gammon, wrapped in bacon. The cheeses, the bubbles and the squeaks, and the puddings, oh God, the puddings, the trifle bathing in a pint of sherry, the crumble crumbling beneath the weight of sugar and butter, and the Christmas pudding which he didn't really like, but right now would swap his second house for. His stomach rumbled mournfully. Shh, Sir Bertie winced at the noise. I can't help being hungry, Bertie. Train yourself to go without. Brav, there's got to be something round here, said Tristan, whose stomach also growled. We are in, like, nature, after all. Isn't that where food basically began? Having come to a natural halt, the others looked around their surroundings. Thick as he was, the lad was right. There had to be something to eat in the woods. I mean, Tristan continued... We are hunters after all. Surely we can catch something like a a rabbit or a cow. Do you know what I mean? The hearts of the others collectively sank. Flora, seemingly reading their minds, said, Has anyone here actually hunted anything? Not on a horse with a pack of dogs and a trumpet. Properly. Or knows how to forage. Or has any knowledge of the woods beyond walking in the bit that they own. I killed a badger once. Hit it with my car. Had to finish it off, though. Dropped the spare tire on its, um... 
he trailed off as his hands finished the mime of the badger's demise. Yeah, so I watched this episode of Bear Grylls once where he ate a load of bugs. And where was this? asked Flora. On the telly, replied Tristan. No, what country? Oh, uh, Australia, yeah, in the outback. And he pissed on his T-shirt, drank it because it was so hot. Nutter. With lightning speed, Flora grabbed Tristan by the throat, lifting him from the floor before Sir Cecil and Sir Bertie managed to drag her away. Tristan fell to the ground and lay there, whimpering. Flora spat on the floor, breathing heavily as she calmed herself down. Realising the situation needed strong leadership, Sir Bertie stepped forward. No one needs to drink their own piss. This is Britain. In winter, there's water everywhere. Let's just press on a bit. There's nothing now, but a bit further on we'll find something. I can sense it. With no other options, the group begrudgingly followed. Sir Cecil put himself in between Flora and Tristan, the latter now cowed into silence, save for the occasional grumble about bare grills. Darkness fell and wrapped them in an icy embrace. Shivering with cold and fear, they carried on in silence, listening out for their predators and wishing they were anywhere but where they were. There, said Sir Bertie. I knew we'd find water. The others looked to see where he was pointing, to see a rank brown puddle, lit by moonlight, laying in the path. I am not drinking that, said Sir Cecil. The others agreed. Nonsense, it's fine, look. Sir Bertie went and knelt over the puddle. He stared into the thick grey sludge. It looked like death. But he'd committed now and couldn't lose face. Scooping up a handful of muck, he pressed it to his lips, held his breath and began to slurp on it. There were sounds of disgust from the others. For God's sakes, man, you're eating mud, said Flora, staring at Sir Bertie with utter revulsion. Tristan began taking off his jacket. No, this is mental. I'm drinking my piss. Hold this. He thrust his red hunting jacket at Sir Cecil, who held it, confused as Tristan whipped his cock out and began pissing. Hold it still, Cecil. Stop pissing on me, then. Meanwhile, Sir Bertie was on the floor, clutching his stomach and retching. It's really not too bad. Come on, Flora. Have some. Flora. Flora. He turned to find her. But Flora wasn't there. Gentlemen, stop! Flora's gone! They all looked round, Tristan's pissing the only sound to punctuate the eerie silence. They immediately began scouring the surrounding bushes, but after a couple of minutes of searching, they returned to the puddle. Maybe she went for a poo? offered Tristan. Don't be stupid, Tristan! And put your cock away, Sir Cecil snapped. He knew what had happened. And, judging by the ashen faces of the others, they did too. She'd been taken, just like that, right there in front of them. A breeze lifted the leaves from the trees and the three looked around nervously at the noise, conscious of the fact that, clearly, they weren't alone. Shall, uh, shall we continue? suggested Sir Cecil. The others shrugged in agreement, knowing full well that to remain was certain death. By pressing on, they could fractionally improve their chances to more or less certain death, which was better. 
Besides, at least with three of them there was more of a chance to get away, whilst the other two could be offered as a distraction, all of them privately thought. They carried on through the bleak darkness in sombre silence. Hunger and fear brought a sharper edge to their senses, and every sound coming from the woods caused an inner panic attack. They kept low, as if by ducking down they would somehow become invisible to the predators that knew exactly where they were. I mean, whatever gets you through it, I suppose. A husk of dawn slithered through the skeletal trees around them. Bent, twisted, they seemed never-ending as gnarled branches reached out to pull them into the dark woods. Sir Cecil had had enough. His stomach screamed with hunger and his legs roared with pain. The riding boots, though stylish, were proving to be absolutely detrimental to his feet. A blister that had formed on a cluster of other blisters burst and with a cry of pain he collapsed among the roots of a tree. Tristan took his cue and stopped as well, stretching his legs against the tree trunk. Come on, get up, we have to keep moving, said Sir Bertie. Why? wheezed Sir Cecil. We don't know where we are in these fucking woods. I've never walked so far in my life without coming across a pub or a tea rooms or an ice cream van. It's like we're walking in circles. Sir Bertie looked at the floor. He had noticed that they had been going in circles on several occasions. As no one else had noticed, he'd not said anything, feeling that would undermine his leadership. Instead, he hoped that a new direction would yield a better result. Instead, it just seemed to lead them into another circle. What's the point? Sir Cecil said again. Clearly, he'd hit a wall, resigned to his fate. Sir Bertie saw a chance to step up. Terrifying though their circular death march had been, it had given him time to think. At the prospect of coming to the end of it, he realised that his life had been completely and utterly pointless. Born into old family money, he'd never had to struggle. The most expensive education in the world had given him far more entitlement than intelligence or skills. He'd tried dozens of entrepreneurial ventures, but all had failed. Eventually, he'd settled into the family business of just having money. He didn't need to do much, thanks to sound investments made by his grandfather in property, weapons and a diamond mine. He had a knighthood, yes, but that was because he was old school chums with the then-chancellor and had donated rather large sums of money into that particular political party. In truth, he didn't really have a political thought in his head. It's just what everyone around him did, like Christmas or getting married. And his wife wasn't exactly enthused with his existence. There'd been some affection at the beginning, but that had given way to a mutual desire to see as little of each other as possible. That's why he joined the TAs, in the hope of finding some purpose in this bizarre stretch of time he found himself floundering in. Guns, camping, camaraderie. He thought it would be a grand adventure, but really it had been quite boring. Lots of shouting and running up hills. He realised, however, that this was it. This situation. If he could get them out of these woods and alert the powers that be to the fox war set to ravage the nation, then he would be remembered for something. Surely. His name would appear in the history books. Brave Sir Bertie. Sir Bertie the Bold. Either was fine. The point, Sir Cecil, is that we have to. We are British, and duty runs deep in our veins. And as knights of the realm, we are duty-bound to persist until the very end. At least one of us has to escape to warn our fellow countrymen about the enemy within. It's do or die. And with a dramatic turn, he span round and began striding off, assuming that his speech had sufficiently roused them in following him. It hadn't. 
and the other two stayed where they were, watching Sir Bertie walking away. For Britain, boys, he called back unknowingly. For Queen and Cunt, ah! He stopped and turned to face the others, looking down at the javelin protruding from his chest, then back at them, confused, before he collapsed in a crumpled heap. Oh dear, he murmured with his last breath. And so ended the life of Sir Bertie Darcy Rubadub-Dub, who never found his meaning after all. I have to say, it was gardening, Bertie. That's all you needed have done to feel complete. Plant some vegetables, get your hands in the soil. It was that simple. But you had to go and complicate things. Idiot. Ah well, done now. Sir Cecil and Tristan charged through the trees. As soon as the javelin had struck, they were suddenly filled with a renewed energy and legged it as far as they could away from their dying comrade. They heard the bloodthirsty howls of victory behind, informing them that Sir Bertie was undergoing the same fate as the others. Nothing we could have done, panted Sir Cecil. No, nothing, Tristan replied breathlessly. Besides... Sir Cecil thought. It at least had bored them some time, and that's all that mattered now. Distance between them and a violent, horrifying death. That would most definitely hurt. A lot. And no one wants that. Sir Cecil was struggling. He couldn't keep up with Tristan, who was much younger and fitter than he. His feet hurt, and he was sure that another blister from the cluster had burst. The open skin chafed horribly. Tristan! Tristan, wait! he called after the young man ahead of him. And to his amazement, Tristan stopped and turned. Seeing that Sir Cecil was struggling, he came back to jog alongside him. Thank you, wheezed Sir Cecil. You're a good man. No worries, Brav. I mean, we've come this far together and I'll feel a lot better going the rest of the way with you, mate. Wherever that is, yeah? They smiled at each other, energized by the warmth that hope can bring, even in the most desperate of times. Tristan suddenly lurched forward, landing face down in the dirt where he yelped in pain. He looked back to see what had tripped him and wretched in horror as he saw his foot mangled in the jaws of a vicious trap, hidden in the undergrowth where no one could see it until it was too late. He grimaced, grunting with pain. He tried to stand, but unable to put any weight on his trapped foot, he fell back down again, causing the metal teeth to bite further into his bone. Help me, bruv, he pleaded with Sir Cecil, fumbling with the trap, trying to find a way of releasing it. But Sir Cecil just stared at Tristan's bloodied ankle. Even if he did release the trap, how much slower would they be now one of them could barely walk? He made up his mind. I'm sorry, Tristan, Sir Cecil said. What? spluttered Tristan, realizing what was happening. Come back, please! Not cool, brav, not cool! But Sir Cecil was gone, charging through the woods once more. Tristan's screams and curses began to fade away as he ploughed on. Besides, he thought to himself, there was nothing he could have done. Nothing at all. How could the foxes be doing this? Animals which up until now had only been interested in feeding and fighting and fucking. Now they had him on the run. A human, top of the food chain, hadn't even thought about the food chain until he found himself back inside it. After a few hours, Sir Cecil was still going. He had moved beyond exhaustion into a state of delirium. Running was out of the question now. His trembling legs wouldn't allow it. 
but he would not stop, stumbling, shuffling. His heart pounded away, threatening to burst from his chest, his lungs swollen sacks, red hot and gasping for air. Occasionally his stomach would tighten, his whole body convulsing to retch up an exhausted bile that he allowed to run down his chin. Still he ploughed on, fueled by desperation and fear. His ears were ringing. The forest was a blur, familiar shapes bending and twisting, spiralling away as their colours melted into each other. It was raining, and his feet slipped on the wet floor, bringing him crashing down into the sludge. He lay there, momentarily his body perfectly happy to stay and sleep in the mud. He tried moving, but his body wouldn't allow it. He thought about moving, staring at his arms, willing them to push up off the floor. Come on, he said to his arms, move. But they remained still. Get up, he ordered again. But the arms weren't having any of it, mocking him with inertia. Don't defy me, I'm warning you. But his threats fell on deaf arms. Filled with rage at the limb's disobedience, Sir Cecil launched himself at the left arm, biting down hard on the exposed flesh of his hand. The arm struggled to free itself, but Sir Cecil bit deep. The right arm, seeing his twin in trouble, began punching Sir Cecil in the face, but he continued like a dog with a bone. Nothing could stop him, not even a whack on the nose which immediately gushed blood down his chin. He bit harder, smiling as he felt the left hand's flesh tear between his teeth. It was only when the right hand began gouging his eye did Sir Cecil finally let go. You vicious bastards, he cried, staring down at his bleeding hands which shivered in the cold. They looked so vulnerable, so scared. Sir Cecil was suddenly overcome with remorse and shame for what he'd done to his poor hands, his innocent fingers, that had been by his side this whole time, fed him, washed him, stuck by him no matter what. I am so sorry, he sobbed. Please, please, I am sorry. His hands paused for a moment, then leapt up to his face where he kissed them tenderly, grateful for their affection as they began stroking him. All things forgiven. He purred as they caressed his folds of flesh, his spine tingling as he felt them lingering on his thighs. He knew where this was going and lay back in the mud staring at the treetops as he felt fingers undoing his belt and sliding over his pubes. Ooh, cold, he flinched, and the hands warmed themselves up before going back down. Sir Cecil closed his eyes, oblivious to the wet mud on his backside, groaning, lost in pleasure. His hands continued, determined to give him something good, to take him away from all of this. He looked up at the empty trees that loomed over him, watching him. He liked that. Let them. Let the forest watch. Enjoying yourselves, he shouted up. Filthy trees. You like it, don't you? Perverts. Perverts. <laughs> they came just as he did. As if summoned like a genie, they materialized from the shadows, silent as smoke, to stand in a ring around him. Some were on all four paws, others upright on their hind legs, standing confidently. 
In their hands they carried weapons, sharpened poles, bows and arrows, slings and clubs. Their faces were painted with patterns, stripes and spirals adorning their fur. A snort, and the pad of hoofbeats revealed itself to be more. Behind this first row sat on the backs of deer, who stamped the ground, great plumes of vapour pouring from their nostrils. As if by some silent command, the foxes stepped aside, creating a column between them. A figure materialised, riding on the back of a great white stag whose eyes blazed red, its antlers tearing through the rainy mist as it swaggered from side to side. The fox held no weapons, and around its neck hung a necklace of feathers, bone and teeth, which looked human. Its body ran with rivers of scars that cut through its fur, which was painted woad blue with signs and symbols. It stared at Sir Cecil with a single jet-black eye, the other forever closed, sealed shut by another thick scar which ran down from an ear to the corner of its mouth, curling into a sneer of pure disdain for the blooded and broken man knelt at its feet. I am Degba, Queen of the Swiftpaw, ruler of the Great South Forest. Sir Cecil's mouth hung open in disbelief, not just because the fox spoke to him, but also because he found her strangely attractive, and it's always a shock to discover that you're into bestiality, but now was not the time to dwell on one's newfound sexual perversions, not when your life's on the line. You... you can talk, he eventually said. Yes, Degba replied, curtly. Sir Cecil looked into her cold, unforgiving eye, then around him at the ring of foxes. This is how it ends, he thought, ripped apart post-wank by a gang of painted vermin, covered in two days' worth of sweat and filth, hungry and exhausted with his dick in his hands, him, a knight of the realm. Please don't kill me, he begged the queen. Please, I I never even wanted to go on the hunt. First time, actually. It, it was the others. They, they made me. I've never hurt a fox, ever. I'm a vegetarian. Please, please. Degba, along with the other foxes, looked with disgust at this pathetic man laying on the floor at their feet, remembering the times their brothers and sisters had begged for their lives before the hounds had ripped them limb from limb. You are not going to die today, Degba growled. We need you. Sir Cecil shuddered with relief. What do you want? I'll do anything, he asked. Are you a man of standing amongst your people? Will they listen to you? Degber asked. Well, I'm a knight of the realm. The fox stared at him blankly. Which makes me pretty important, yes, he clarified, fumbling earnestly with the buttons on his trousers. Degber sneered, then yelped at a fox who hurried forward with a sack, which was thrust into Sir Cecil's hands. Open it, Degba ordered. He did so, tentatively, and as he peered inside, Sir Bertie's face stared back at him. He was caked in dry blood. The head had been ripped off, the neck chewed through, and an ear hung limply from the side. His eyes looked right through Sir Cecil, fixed forever in an expression of terror, a portrait of a man meeting his end. Sir Cecil retched, closing the sack in its grim contents. What the... What am I going to do with this? It's a message to your leaders to help them understand. We are taking back these woods. For too long, the fox has been hunted, murdered for sport. 
that time is now over. We are taking back our lands. The clans are uniting. We want to live in peace. But if the Countryside Alliance insists on war... Degba leaned over the antlers of her stag, her face inches away from Sir Cecil. Then this is what you can expect. She sat back in the saddle. You will be escorted to the edge of the forest. You can make your own way from there. I'm sure you'll get picked up soon. She looked at him. Sir Cecil weighed up his options. As much as he didn't want to traipse through the countryside with Sir Bertie's head in a sack, he also didn't want to die. I'll do it, he said. About an hour later, Sir Cecil was out of the woods, trudging through a muddy field, Sir Bertie's head knocked against his leg with every step. They'd taken him to the edge of the forest and pointed him in the vague direction of a road. He had no idea where he was, and he was still hungry, and the sack was heavy. But he had survived, and he was going to do as Degba had said and give the Countryside Alliance her message, and he knew what their answer would be. He'd be back, and the next time that vixen bitch would be on her knees before him, he'd show those foxes exactly what they were dealing with. Come on, Bertie, he said, slinging the sack over his shoulder. Let's go home. And he ploughed on, fueled by thoughts of revenge. Degba and her fox horde watched him from the forest edge. Do you really think they'll leave us be? growled Hoth a grizzled fox who led her cavalry. No, said Degba, not taking her eyes off Sir Cecil, and nor did she particularly want them to. What was to be had been written long before, and she knew what was to come. A sound from the bushes behind drew her attention from Sir Cecil, and turning in her saddle she saw Baglud, one of her captains emerging from the shadows, leading a young human man behind her. Degba could see that he'd been wounded, and he limped forwards, until forced to kneel at the hooves of her stag. What's your name? she asked the quivering wreck. Uh, 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 I'm Tristan, he spluttered through sobs without looking up. B please, let me go. I'll do anything, my family's very rich, just, just please let me go. Degba smiled. I'm afraid your money is no good here, boy. And besides, I've got big plans for you, Tristan. Big plans. And with a yelp to her captains, she turned her stag into the woods. And she, the foxes, and Tristan disappeared into the shadows. And that is where the story ends. For now. It wouldn't let me have it all. What a tease. Clearly it hasn't made up his mind where he's going. Or it just wants us to wait. Such a fickle temptress. Stories can be like that. But I feel this won't be the last we hear of Sir Cecil Gubbington and the Fox Clan. Oh no. Just you wait. Well, I am sorry to be leaving you hanging from a cliff, but I must go. My bath is ready. And I'm bored of your brain. Don't forget... Buy a mattress. Until next time, hold tight and be well. well, well.